0: Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is March 9th, 2018 and I'm your host, Elliot. Joining me today in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug and Gabby. Welcome. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: So today I'm pleased to announce that we have a very special guest on the show with us. Um, It is a Dr. Stephanie Seneff. So Stephanie Senef is a senior research scientist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Um, So she she received her bachelor's degree in biophysics, um, a master's and EE degrees in electrical engineering. And then she also got a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science. Um, But since then, she has spent a long time um, studying various other fields including nutrition and health and wellness so uh, she's particularly known for her work in the field of autism in cardiovascular disease in um, environmental toxicity and she has focused a lot of her research on sulfate and so this interview is probably going to touch on um, some concepts which are not very well known um and it may get quite technical in some some areas but stick with us and um and i hope you enjoyed the show so welcome to the show stephanie
1: delighted to be here thank you for having me
0: and so um to start off with i'd just like to ask since you've got such like a wide um variety of sort of expertise in so many different fields Mm. um and coming from a, a an engineering background um, what was it that made you want to start studying nutrition and health and wellness and things in more
1: depth? Well, it was, I've always been interested in nutrition and health and I've sort of watched some of the interesting but I felt incorrect advice about things like low-fat diet which I never adopted and things like statin drugs which I hated mm-hmm. and so I had sort of opinions about the medical you know the current medical and view on food is uh, is not healthy So I was interested, but it was really about over 10 years ago when my husband was diagnosed with heart heart disease, quite by surprise. We didn't realize. And he was put on a high dose statin. And um, I already hated statins before that happened. And so I started doing deep search into statin drugs. At the same time, I was noticing an exponential rise in the rates of autism. The Numbers were still pretty small back then, but I could see the exponential growth. And that really worried me because I, I understood uh, how devastating aut- an autism diagnosis is for the, for the mother to, to have to face the fact that her child may may never be able to live on their own. You know, always mm-hmm. going to be a, um, a challenge to take care of um, and the loss of that, of that person's cont- contribution to society. And so I was interested in both autism, really curious as to what was causing the epidemic, wanted to get to the bottom of it, frustrated that all the research was going into, most of the research dollars are going into g- genetics, and there is a genetic component, but that's not the cause. The cause of the epidemic is not genetic because mm-hmm. genetics doesn't cause epidemics. It has to be something in the in the environment. So I started systematically going through all the toxic chemicals, looking for correlations with specifically heart disease and autism. And, of course, also studying those two diseases to understand them better. And I really got into sulfate very early in the process because... Um, I could see a connection both to autism and to heart disease, which was really exciting. So it all kind of came together that I kind of realized eventually that they were kind of uh, very different manifestations of the same underlying problem, which is a uh, system-wide sulfate deficiency.
0: And so um, just to back up a little bit, could you, for the listeners who aren't aware, would you be able to just sort of briefly touch upon what exactly sulfate is? Um, Yes,
1: yes. Right. So sulfur is is one of the basic uh, elements of the periodic table, like oxygen and carbon. You know those sort of. If, if you've had any chemistry, you know about these these elements, that uh, the the, for, the basic elements that build up all of the materials on on Earth and in the universe. It's quite amazing that there's just these the periodic table characterizes all of these individual elements, which are put together to make molecules and molecules are sort of combinations of elements. Sulfur is right underneath oxygen in the periodic table and it has a lot of the properties of oxygen. And in fact, it's believed that early life uh, was based on sulfur rather than oxygen. I mean, today, of course, oxygen is essential for us, but hemoglobin, which is an oxygen carrier in the red blood cells, it looks as if it was originally designed to carry sulfur, which is quite interesting. And so some of the really basic enzymes that me- that do things with sulfur in the body um, are very, very ancient. They're very ancient enzymes. So it's quite interesting to look at the early life and to think about that. And of course, the sulfur hot springs, uh, there are people who believe that that's where life first evolved, which is really fascinating. Uh, so sulfur is very, very important, very basic. Sulfate is sulfur and oxygen. So those two very, very important elements in, in, in life combined combined to make sulfate it's actually one sulfur four oxygens and minus 2 charge and all of that is bound together in this kind of tetrahedral structure that is a um, a really unique molecule that has really interesting biophysical and biochemical properties
0: and so some of the if if you were to speak to someone who is typically trained in biology and you were to ask them okay so what functions does sulfur has in the body um, what are some of the established functions, you know, what does it contribute to and why do we need it?
1: Yeah, so sulfur is a it's in a small number of the amino acids. You know, the amino acids are the building blocks of the proteins and they're also what the DNA code, the famous DNA four-letter code, codes for amino acids. So there's about 20 of them and to, uh, a few of them contain sulfur, uh, taurine, cysteine, methionine, and homocysteine, those four are what they call sulfur-containing amino acids, and those amino acids have very special properties, and they have a lot of uh, interesting things that they do throughout the body. But part of it is just being in, built into the proteins, uh, and then doing interesting things within the proteins to make the proteins do their job. And the proteins do all kinds of things: they're enzymes, they're transporters, they're receptors. You know, all the different activities that are going on uh, to make uh, to manage life Our, um, our uh proteins are carry those out. So they're really kind of the, the workhorses of the body. And so there's those few that contain sulfur and then there are other proteins that don't contain, I mean other amino acids that don't contain sulfur are, also have various essential roles that they play. But the sulfate, so sulfate is not a protein. That's a, uh, an, it's called an anion. And there's a certain amount of free sulfate in the blood. Um, it's like carbonate, people have probably heard of carbonate mm-hmm. or citrate, you know, there's all these anions in the blood and sulfate is one of them. But sulfate is, is especially interesting because it binds to other molecules and changes their properties. So sulfate is really important, for example, for detoxifying certain toxic chemicals by making them more soluble, which then allows access to the enzymes that can break them down or can get it exported to the urine and kicked out of the body. So sulfate is really important for detoxification of many different toxic chemicals. Uh, sulfate also um, binds to the what's called the extracellular matrix, which is this matrix outside the cells that the cells is sort of their interface with the world. And the sulfate is actually super, super important for the cell to be able to communicate with the world, for the cell to be able to take in the nutrition that it needs. Many of the activities that the cell does in its interactions with its outside space, with whatever's coming to it from the blood, involves a molecule called heparin sulfate which is attached outside the cell and which orchestrates the, uh, the communication channels and the import and export of materials. So that's really, really important for the health of the cell. It's also very important in the red blood cells. The red blood cells carry a molecule called cholesterol sulfate, which they, they decorate themselves with cholesterol sulfate. They don't have a typical extracellular matrix like the other cells do, but that cholesterol sulfate provides a negative charge that makes the red blood cells repel each other so that they don't stick together. And that is very important to maintain. Healthy blood circulation. So if the red blood cells don't have enough sulfate, they can sort of glom together and cause um, cause issues with blood flow, get blockages, and things like that.
0: And so, um, so you said about heparin sulfate, and so it's um, so so when so for instance, when we eat dietary sulfur-containing amino acids, we need to convert those to sulfate. Is that correct?
1: That's right, yes, that's very, very interesting. And I would actually like to talk a little bit about a particular amino acid, taurine, which is really, really fascinating. I've actually studied taurine quite a bit because I find it so interesting. And it's also connected to autism because autistic kids tend to have a deficiency in taurine. And taurine is, uh, is not a coding amino acid. So the other three that I mentioned, I mentioned four sulfur-containing amino acids. Three of them go into the proteins. Taurine does not, it always stands alone. And in fact, it's considered to be inert that human cells do not have the capacity to break it down, which is quite interesting. However, the liver, the heart, and the brain store huge amounts of taurine. They, they accumulate it and they stuff it inside that, themselves and hang, hang on to it. And when there is a stressful condition such as a heart attack, or for example, seizures, then the, the in a heart attack, the heart releases taurine and in seizures, the brain releases taurine into the blood, into the circulation. That taurine goes to the liver, gets taken up by the liver, gets conjugated with bile acids and shipped over to the gut. All of this is done, I believe, in order to let the gut microbes convert that taurine into sulfate. And this is a theory of mine. Hmm. But people are puzzled as to why these organs store so much taurine and why do they dump it out? They can't figure it out. I think it's all, um, it's a storage, it's a way to store a reserve capacity for sulfate when sulfate is severely deficient and that, therefore as a corollary i believe that a severe sulfate deficiency is what drives a heart attack or a seizures
0: mm. in the past you've you've um, i've heard you speak about how the body will try to um, it will prefer preferentially replenish sulfate at the the detriment to other sort of functions yeah so so sulfate is um, in some way Uh, really important for Mm -hmm. our short-term survival yeah so I guess what I'm trying to trying to say is would you be able to explain why sulfate is so fundamentally important for say the the blood flow what what is the exact mechanism there
1: yes well it's quite interesting because sulfate has a unique property well there's a few uh, other molecules that share that property but sulfate is especially good at Something's called it's, a, it's called, it's called a cosmotrope, and this is a particular kind of molecule that is able to basically turn water into jello. So you think of when you make jello, you know, and you get that little package of gelatin and you pour it into the boiling water, and then you, you add the cold water and you let it sit in the refrigerator, and then it turns into something hard. And yet you know it's mostly water, but it feels like a substance that's got much more in it than water. It just has that little bit of powder, and yet the whole thing becomes this big solid mass of jello. And that is that is structured water, and this is the thing that Gerald Pollack talks so much about, structured water. Most of the water in your body is structured water, and in order for it to maintain that structure, it needs molecules like sulfate to support that structured form of the water. It's like a, I call it liquid ice because it has the same physical organization of the water molecules as what you see in crystals of ice. And it, um, and that structured water is also called an exclusion zone. This is something that Jerry Paul talks about, that when the water structures like that, it pushes everything out, so it becomes really pure water. And this is what happens along the edges of all of the walls of the blood vessels. The endothelial cells lining the blood vessels have this extracellular matrix. It has these sulfates attached to it. They create this jello that then it lubricates it. It surrounds the internal... Uh, face of the blood vessel and makes the blood vessel very very slick and if you think of a gelatin a surface of jello very very slick and frictionless Hmm. so that the uh, red blood cells can just slide right through the capillaries without having a great deal of resistance it's really important to allow the red blood cells to flow smoothly through the circulation you know the body has an interesting challenge to keep the blood liquid but to maintain this jello uh, surface at the edge of the blood. So there's a boundary between the structured water and the unstructured water, which is just the liquid blood. And it's at that boundary that you actually end up having a battery. And this is another thing that Gerald Pollack talks about. The structured water, not only does it exclude things, but it also is negatively charged. It pushes out protons and then it creates essentially a battery because the protons are attracted to that negative charge. So they hang out along the surface of that, boundary between the structured water, which is the jello, and the liquid water, which is the flowing blood. There's a battery that's created along the edge of the artery wall, and those batteries that are then fueling all of our cells with electricity. Hmm. So that is most, most remarkable, that if you don't have enough sulfate, you don't have enough electricity. You don't have adequate electrical supply to your body.
0: Uh, And so um, that that electrical supply, um, does that enter the cell? How does that exactly enter the cell? Is that through Um, the cytoskeleton?
1: That's what I believe, yes. I believe that the cytoskeleton actually uh, transfers protons. The protons gather at the surface, at the boundary, and then they're gathered up into these interesting little caves called cavioli that are formed in the membrane of the cell. And the protons go into there and then they hook up to the cytoskeleton, which is this big mesh, which is considered to be the structural support for the cell. But it doubles also as electrical wires. And then the mitochondria and the lysosomes, they hang out, they attach themselves to the cytoskeleton. And the both of them need to have uh, charge separation, but they need to have a lot of protons. They both require a space that's uh, confined space that's highly acidic. Lysosomes have to be very acidic in order to be able to digest cellular debris. And they can pull in those protons from the cytoskeleton, which are created through the battery that's provided by the sulfate. So that's how you get back to the sulfate being essential. In order for the cell to be able to digest cellular debris, that's the lysosomes, but also in order for the cell to be able to generate ATP, which is the energy carrying molecule of the cell, the mitochondria generate the ATP And they depend upon also the supply of those protons to create this. um, They have a very negatively charged uh, internal space, and then they have an intermembrane space that's very that has a lot of protons in it. So you create that charge, a very strong charge um, boundary, a battery in the mitochondria that drives uh, the the electron transport chain chain that produces the ATP.
0: Wow. Yes. So so what you're basically saying here is sort of um completely at odds with the current ideas of or i'll say the old-fashioned ideas of biology in that the cell and that the body is made up of a bunch of salty bags of fluid and all of our organelles are floating around and all of this stuff whereas actually it seems that the the more modern research is actually showing that it's not so much like that and that there is this cytoskeleton and that many of the interactions between cells and within cells are fundamentally biophysical in nature
1: yes.
0: um and yes. i think that's what you're touching touching upon thank that's you right. for explaining that dr Senef. um yes and of course the now, other thing
1: is that the cytoplasm is very is, is gel and that gel actually holds the ion so that the, the cell does not have so much trouble maintaining the ion gradients that it maintains which are also of course critical for its um, for the energy for the All the things that it does it needs to have um, different concentrations of ions between the inside and the outside and it does this of course with pumps which require energy but if it can actually hold those ions in place because of the structured water um, it helps to um, lessen its burden of Mm. it's not as hard for it to keep that ion gradient if its water is not liquid that's what I'm trying to say
0: Dr. Sanaf, sorry, could I just quickly ask, are you familiar with, um, with Ling's Association yes. of yes. hypothesis? Okay, this is,
1: That's what I was thinking of when I was saying that, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, and so, right, so just to clarify, the, the, the capillaries in the blood vessels, um, in order to facilitate blood flow, healthy blood flow, there needs to be this layer of gel-like water on the edge of the... Of the vessel layer, yeah, and that is yeah. what helps us to essentially transport things, and that also provides electricity for the cell. Um, now, so what? Um, what other factors can affect that? So, you, you touched upon Gerald Pollock's work. Now, um, he is he his experiments showed that there was an interaction between light. Mm-hmm. and this exclusion zone water would you be able to touch on that briefly
1: that's so fascinating i was really i've read some of his papers and i've read his books a couple of his books um his books are great because they are written more further off and more accessible to the lay public because his field is extremely difficult and and most of the papers that are written in that field are unintelligible and i have trouble understanding them hmm. his papers are more accessible in his books especially he has a really good way of Presenting the information in a descriptive fashion that a naive person can understand. <laughs> um, but he showed very brilliantly that when you shine infrared light on this exclusion zone, you set up a uh, he sets up these artificial arteries, you might call them, um, using these uh, special you know materials that are simulating uh, the extracellular matrix. And he can show that when you shine light and particularly infrared light, it causes this exclusion zone water to expand by a factor of four in his experiments, hmm. by a factor of four. So when that exclusion zone water expands, that's also expanding the capacity of the battery. It gets create, it's taking the sunlight's energy and turning it into a battery. So it's basically like a solar solar panel. I consider the skin to be like a solar panel. And the red blood cells are doing this too, I believe. They're, they're, they're all so they're making the sulfate. I believe they're using the energy in the sunlight to make the sulfate. This is the thing that is another part of my theories having to do with this uh, enzyme called endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which is a very highly regulated enzyme with very intricate control that uh, turns it on, turns it off. It makes nitric oxide, but what I believe is that it also makes sulfur dioxide when it's attached to the membrane. So it basically goes from the membrane to the cytoplasm, back to the membrane. Under very careful control from signaling that's going on to the cell to tell it at any given moment, should I be making sulfate or should I be making nitrate? Because those two will oxidize through other enzymes to either sulfate or nitrate. And sulfate gels water and nitrate ungels it. And so what's happening is that there's all this signaling that's going on in the blood to, to carefully control the, the blood so that you've got this, this uh, ability to maintain flow through the nitrate and to maintain gel through the sulfate and to do this with intricate control from a communication channel from whatever else is going on in the rest of the cells in the vicinity. Very interesting communication going on among the cells to maintain the water in the proper state at all times uh, collectively. Do you see what I'm saying? It's really mm-hmm. fascinating. Enos can go back and forth between the membrane depending upon what kind of signaling is being delivered to the cell. That's really now- fascinating what um
0: what specifically is it contained within the light source uh, or what frequency of light do you think it is that has that effect do you think it's uv light or do you think it, it can be applicable for infrared light as well
1: i think that uh, the enos uses blue light infrared light and uv light for various different purposes to hor- orchestrate this whole sulfate synthesis process enos has attached to it Two flavins called FMN and FAD um, that respond to blue light, and they respond to blue light and emit um, protons as a consequence of response to blue light, and they change the blue light into green light, and then they it, it sort of emits energy that um, photons that produce superoxide from oxygen. So this is how you get a source of a reactive molecule that can then react with the, in the enos. The enos has a sulfur. I suspect attached to glutathione, that becomes sulfate by reacting the superoxide that's created by the blue light. So the blue light actually turns out to be very important, I suspect. And then the UV light also energizes the uh, extracellular water, energizes the the, uh, structured water to make it all more likely to cause reactions. It's trying to energize a reaction to make the sulfate.
0: Okay, and so when you do make the sulfate, um, what was the question? Sorry. When you make the cholesterol sulfate, um, is there anything that stops your body from being able to use it? Or in other words, is there anything that stops your body's ability to make the cholesterol sulfate?
1: Yeah, well, this is where I think glyphosate comes in and plays an important role because I think glyphosate messes up enos in multiple ways. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in the pervasive herbicide Roundup. And uh, it's a uh, it's supposed to be non toxic to humans. It's supposed to be a wonderful chemical that we use to kill weeds and makes our food production much cheaper uh, and more efficient. Is is the claim? And it's harmless to humans, and therefore it's great. And uh, I have I beg to differ. I think that glyphosate is probably the most important toxic chemical in our environment today. I believe it is the source of the epidemic that we're seeing in autism. It's also actually the source of the high serum LDL problem that we have, which puts people on statin drugs, and the source of many, many other problems, both cancers and um, Alzheimer's disease and various gut problems, kidney failure, all kinds of different problems that we're seeing, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. I connect all of them to glyphosate. I think it's an insidious cumulative toxin that is pervasive in our environment. And we are getting, in America, we are really... Completely overwhelmed in the healthcare system right now by all the diseases that people are, uh, experiencing. All of these chronic diseases, diabetes, obesity, autism. It's just, um, very, very challenging in this country right now to, uh, to be able to afford healthcare because so many people are so sick. Mm. And I blame it. I blame the epidemic. It's not that glyphosate's is the only thing that causes these diseases, but it is causing the epidemic in all of these diseases. And it's doing so through a remarkable uh, toxic mechanism, which involves um, its insidious ability to get into proteins by mistake in place of the coding amino acid glycine. So glyphosate is a glycine molecule with extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom. And I believe it is infiltrating the proteins and messing them up. And so you can go and find all the different proteins that have essential glycines. One of them is enos. Enos has terminal glycines that are essential for it to be able to attach to the membrane. And enos also has additional highly conserved glycines that are necessary for it to form a dimer. Normally enos has two molecules that go together and they form a cavity in the middle and that cavity contains a zinc atom. And that zinc atom is, I think, attracting the sulfur and creating, it's the place where the sulfate happens, where the sulfate is made. So both the dimer formation and the attachment to the membrane depend on glycine Glyphosate, I believe, is substituting for that glycine, messing up the molecule, preventing it from going to the membrane, preventing it from making sulfate and causing, therefore, a crisis with sulfate insufficiency.
0: And that would um, that would that help to explain why they're finding glyphosate like embedded within like muscle meat of animals in, 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 it's actually being incorporated into the collagen is, is yes, that
1: yes. collagen you think is that's the is case most yes, collagen is the most common uh, protein in the body. Twenty-five percent of the body body's protein are collagen molecules. Collagen contains a huge amount of glycine. Like twenty to twenty five percent of the amino acids within collagen are glycines. It is really, really unusual in that respect. So it has a huge opportunity to be destroyed by glyphosate. And it depends upon those glycines to form its its, its helical structure. It has this uh, triple helix structure that it forms. And it has a glycine at every third residue to make that structure work. And if you replace those glycines with glyphosate randomly, you're gonna mess up the structure of the collagen. You're gonna mess up its tensile strength, its, its uh, flexibility, you're gonna mess up its ability to hold water. And you're going to cause things like rheumatoid arthritis and all kinds of bone pain, joint pain that we're seeing. You're going to cause things like an epidemic in opioid drug overdoses. I think it's directly connected Hmm. to that.
0: So it replaces the glycine, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't have the same um, effect as the glycine. It's not as the the protein doesn't work properly. Yeah.
1: Right, because it has this extra thing attached to the nitrogen, which is this methyl group. And that thing is negatively charged and bulky. So it totally messes up the way glycine is the smallest amino acid. It has no side chain and it's chosen in certain places in proteins because of that. It has an essential role that it plays in many proteins. This is what I'm finding. I'm still finding new proteins every day that have essential glycines that would cause disease if those glycines are replaced. And it's just astonishing that you can actually explain very easily all these diseases that are highly correlated with glyphosate. Usage. We've had an exponential growth in glyphosate usage on core crops in the United States over the past two decades, in step with the exponential growth in autism and Alzheimer's disease, and you know, kidney failure. All these different problems, diabetes, are connected. I think they're directly linked to the glyphosate, which is accumulating in our tissues. I'll tell you, Monsanto has a study um, that they did in 1989. Researchers, Monsanto researchers, did a study with something called a bluegill sunfish and they exposed this fish to radio-labeled glyphosate. They had carbon-14 put into the glyphosate so they could track it. And then they looked at the tissues of the fish, and they found high levels of this radio label, they found measurable levels of this radio label in the tissues. And when they tried Uh to detect the glyphosate, they found that the methods that they used to detect glyphosate depend upon it being an independent molecule. And they found only 17% of the radio label could be accounted for explicitly as glyphosate. So they were confused. What happened to glyphosate? Once they added a digestive enzyme that breaks proteins down into individual amino acids, they increased the yield up to something like 57%, still Mm -hmm. missing quite a bit of the radio label, which means they were able to break the protein down, but not completely. So I think glyphosate makes the protein difficult to break down, as well as messing up its ability to do its job it makes it difficult to break it down so you end up with a slow accumulation of glyphosate contaminated proteins that your body can't clear and of course it also messes up the sulfate which is needed to break down cellular debris so you've got these busted proteins that you can't get rid of because you don't have enough sulfate to create the acidic environment that you need to digest and to break down those broken proteins
0: so so let's just um, sorry, I'm just going to go over that to make sure that I understand. So the lysosomes, they are cellular organelles. They're basically mm-hmm. machines that you use in your cells to break down and recycle tissue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, recycle yeah. cellular components. And yeah. so what you're talking about before, how the sulfate is so fundamentally important for that process um, and the fact that glyphosate, not only does it disrupt this enos enzyme, but it also has a couple of other well there's several other ways in which it disrupts sulfate metabolism yeah and Mm -hmm. so if if there is an accumulation of glyphosate and then there is a subsequent or sort of simultaneous decrease in the sulfate availability Mm -hmm. um it's not going to spell out very good things is it
1: no in fact what will happen is for example you'll accumulate amyloid beta plaque and get alzheimer's disease ah we actually just had a question in our chat about that they were asking if uh there's a connection between the broken proteins and MLA plaques. I absolutely think there is. And in fact, it's very fascinating. And I've been reading actually recently, I've even gotten more recent material that I've just been finding on a particular motif. They have these things called motifs, which are patterns that show up in certain proteins that are essential for their function. And there's a motif that shows up in uh, the Alzheimer's plaque, which is called a GXXXG motif. The two Gs stand for glycine and the X's stand for wild card. So you have a glycine amino acid and then three other amino acids and then another glycine in that pattern, GXXXG motif. And the amyloid beta plaque has three of these that are highly conserved. And there are other molecules that also have this GXXXG motif that are membrane proteins They're transmembrane proteins, which the plaque is, the Alzheimer's plaque comes from a transmembrane protein that becomes disrupted and ends up as a soluble protein in the cytoplasm instead of its proper position in the membrane. And it does this under strange conditions that they don't understand, but they are targeting that GXXXG motif as being central to the problem because they can find that piece that has that in it, is the, uh, it causes the, the plaque to form. And so they're suspecting that those glycines are somehow connected to Alzheimer's. But what they don't understand is that it's because they're not glycine, they're glyphosate, that that's happening. Uh-huh. The glyphosate creates a negative charge that causes it to bind to aluminum. And the aluminum causes these, these molecules to form, to hook together. The aluminum ties them together because you have the plus three aluminum charge. And then the two negatively charged glyphosate molecules in two separate uh, instances of this protein that then stick to the aluminum and stick together. So you form this kind of complex um of these molecules in the cytoplasm that are which is not where they're supposed to be and which is the source of of trouble for the neuron that causes it to die
0: and is the aluminum yeah. um i mean uh, people usually like you know there's this kind of um common thought that uh, aluminum is actually what causes um alzheimer's disease but it there's sounds like from what you're explaining
1: yeah i mean hmm. in fact um Exley has been doing a lot of research on aluminum. He has recently found high levels of aluminum in autism brains, which is quite exciting to me because I've written about aluminum and autism. I think it is a a major player in the autism Mm. problem. But I think the glyphosate, and I've written about the glyphosate making the aluminum much more toxic than it would otherwise be because the glyphosate binds to the aluminum and neutralizes its positive charge, which makes it much easier for it to get across the gut barrier and glyphosate also opens up the gut barrier, opens up the brain barrier, allows aluminum to gain access to the brain. And both Alzheimer's and autism are going up dramatically in step with glyphosate usage. And both of those have been found to have high levels of aluminum in the brain in association with them post-mortem. When they examine the brain, they find high levels of aluminum. Hmm.
0: Um. So, right, so just back onto onto glyphosate if we could just go over some of the ways in which it does disrupt sulfate metabolism so Mm -hmm. you you explained how it it it, um sorry inhibits nos enos Mm -hmm. or it it stops stops enos from working um but it also has lots of other ways in which it disrupts it doesn't it and it's crazy because when i when i started reading your work it was like it seemed that glyphosate was just sulfate's worst enemy in every exactly. single way in every it's, single way because there's so many ways
1: it's <laughs> truly amazing yes and i just should mention with enos enos is a cytochrome p450 enzyme and glyphosate has been demonstrated to severely suppress enzymes cytochrome p450 enzymes in the liver and those are also essential for bile acid formation mm-hmm. and also for um detoxing many toxic chemicals so you're uh, glyphosate makes everything else more toxic than it would otherwise be by disrupting the sype enzymes. Um, the, starting with the, the main effect of glyphosate that Monsanto talks about is the uh, shikimate pathway, which is, they proudly say that our cells don't have that pathway and that's why glyphosate is safe. However, our gut microbes do have that pathway and they use it to make the aromatic amino acids, which are three of the essential coding amino acids I mentioned earlier. Hmm. tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine. Tryptophan is a precursor to serotonin, and serotonin is produced in largest amounts in the gut, and it's actually shipped to the brain, attached to sulfate. So serotonin is produced, sulfated, and shipped to the brain, and I believe it's delivering sulfate to the brain. When it, that's part one of its important roles, is to deliver sulfate to the brain. So because of the deficiency in tryptophan, which will be deficient in the food because the food is exposed to glyphosate, the plants will not be able to make adequate amounts of tryptophan. So we get a deficiency in our diet. And then our gut microbes are supposed to make tryptophan for us as well. They can't do it because of the glyphosate. Tryptophan is is deficient. Therefore, serotonin is deficient. And of course, serotonin is also a really important neurotransmitter precursor to melatonin. That means melatonin is deficient, and melatonin delivers sulfate to the brain while you sleep. Melatonin is actually produced by the pineal gland, released uh, when, you, when you sleep, attached to sulfate. And the pineal gland produces sulfate by day. It's, it's sitting behind the eyes, so when the eyes are receiving light, the pineal gland produces sulfate. And then that's so it's stored during the day, and then it uses uses that sulfate at night to attach it to the melatonin molecule. So when the sulfate's deficient and the melatonin is deficient, then you get a deficiency in both of those in the brain, and you can't sleep. And we have an epidemic in sleep disorder in this country, in the United States, yeah, as a consequence.
0: And it also, uh, it collates certain minerals doesn't it mm-hmm. so it's molybdenum
1: sulfur. so it prevents sulfur, sulfur itself it prevents sulfur from being taken up by the cells. so you're going to have a deficiency in sulfur in your foods and it also uh, there's a whole other thing which has to do with methionine synthesis it's been shown in e coli that glyphosate suppresses critical enzymes involved in the s- synthesis of methionine from inorganic sulfur so when you eat sulfur you need to produce uh, again the microbes you depend on the microbes to make the methionine which is an essential amino acid and they make it using enzymes that are that are disrupted by glyphosate so you cannot turn inorganic sulfur into methionine which then results in an overgrowth of bacteria that reduce sulfur to to hydrogen sulfide gas which can be toxic in excess amounts so people get under glyphosate exposure they get an excess of species called Desulfo Vibrio and um, Biophila Wadsworthia. These are two species that reduce sulfur to sulfur containing um, things like, you know, in garlic and onions and in cruciferous vegetables or, in this, or the sulfite that's in wine or dried fruits. All of those things are going to get turned into hydrogen sulfide gas if your system that produces methionine is not working. And so, and also the system, the the protein that oxidizes sulfur to sulfate is called sulfide oxidase. That one also depends on heme. Enos depends on heme. Heme synthesis is disrupted by glyphosate. So there's like just a million ways in which glyphosate disrupts sulfur.
0: Yeah, so, so when you eat something containing sulfur, you have to basically, it has to go through loads of conversions to be able to be made into this inorganic sulfate, which is the usable form. You activate it and then it can be put to use. And yeah. so glyphosate, I mean, I swear, practically every single one of those pathways is blocked off by glyphosate. Um, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, however Mons- Monsanto managed to come up with something so, <laughs> so bad. I mean, it boggles my mind completely. But um, but so, and this, what you just touched upon, this is one of the things that really stood out for me and, and really made me want to delve into your work quite a lot more, was this idea that there is some sort of adaptation to the body's inability to gain access to sulfate. So what you were just saying, if I'm correct, just Mm -hmm. to, to briefly give an overview, is that when someone eats sulfur containing foods and their Mm -hmm. their body has a problem with converting those because the conversion pathways are blocked by glyphosate then what might happen is that their their body may actually facilitate an overgrowth in certain bacteria in Mm -hmm. the gut so what Mm -hmm. we know is gut dysbiosis it -hmm. facilitates this growth of bacteria and this growth of bacteria actually they find another pathway to provide the body with sulfate and this is one that by producing hydrogen sulfide gas, correct?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's really fascinating because the hydrogen sulfide gas is is very, very um, mobile. It can it can basically go. It's like a ghost. It can go through all tissues. It can go through you know the the, mem- the cell membranes. It doesn't have to be transported in the blood. It just wanders through the body like a gas, it is a gas, and it just wanders everywhere. So the gut microbes produce it, and then it migrates in this fashion over to the liver, over to the pancreas, over to the spinal cord. And when it arrives at its destination, it can then be oxidized to sulfate by the cells that are in that environment, by those tissues. But in order to do that, you have to have superoxide. So you have to have oxidative damage. And so what we're seeing, you know, a lot of these uh, diseases driven by inflammation the the goal, I think, the main purpose of the inflammation is to generate the superoxide in order to be able to make the sulfate on the fly from the hydrogen sulfide gas. And that's because you couldn't deliver the sulfate. You did not have enough sulfate carriers available to deliver the sulfate to the to the organ. And therefore the organ had to make its own sulfate from the gas that was produced by those reducing bacteria. So it's an amazing system as an alternative way to transport sulfate by first converting it to this gas and then delivering it to a destination which will then oxidize it back to sulfate but suffer from collateral damage because of it.
0: And and it's also that the, the hydrogen sulfide gas produced in the gut can also produce some really unpleasant symptoms as well.
1: Absolutely. Can't it? Absolutely. So,
0: so it can produce diarrhea and inflammation and things like that
1: exactly and that's why people have sulfur sensitivities and i certainly when i was first started talking about sulfur Hmm. and sulfate i got a lot of people sending me emails saying but i can't eat sulfur you know i I can't eat garlic it makes me sick and that's what caused me to puzzle over that for quite some time before i finally feel like i've understood what's going on but it's because the the mechanisms that the body has in place which depend on the gut microbes uh, but those microbes are being broken. They're being killed by glyphosate. And so they're not able to do their job. So then you have these other microbes that uh, grow instead and that are able to do the same. They're, they're aiming to, to to provide the same solution to be able to, to solve the problem of sulfate deficiency through a completely different strategy, which unfortunately involves side effects. And this is what you see, I think. For example, gout, we wrote a whole paper about gout. Uh, which is also going up, by the way, in step with glyphosate usage. Gout is like an inflammation, usually in the big toe, very, very painful. gets red and swollen and comes periodically, you know, usually in the middle of the night. But it's very fascinating when you look at exactly what goes on biochemically in the gouty toe. It's all about making sulfate. In fact, hydrogen sulfide gas is produced and then it's oxidized and you get the oxidative damage. All the same thing. All of that. this pattern of, pain in that joint because that joint is taking on the responsibility of making cholesterol sulfate and delivering it to the blood.
0: Hmm. And this, I mean, this is a completely radical idea because it kind of flies in the face of everything that we think we know about disease. Because it, it kind of like what you're suggesting is that perhaps what is seen as a as a disease is actually a way like a way of protecting the body is actually like a backup mechanism. And so there's quite a, quite a few other theories that you've come up with, which I mm-hmm. feel like makes so much sense. So you spoke about dysbiosis and in, in the gut, but then you've also you wrote a, an amazing paper with your colleagues, um, and it was it was about atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. So would you be able to explain what you think the cardiovascular disease or the atherosclerosis actually might be?
1: Absolutely, yes. I find that very fascinating. Of course, that's also close to my heart because of my husband's issues. And I believe that the... I mean, it's interesting that the cardiovascular plaque builds up in the arteries that are feeding the most important organ in the body. You would think, you know, people say it's just sort of passively getting stuffed there by mistake. You've got too much cholesterol in your blood. It's just getting piled in your arteries, that's not true at all. It's being actively recruited into those vessels that are supplying the heart in order to have that cholesterol ready to go as soon as sulfate becomes available. So whenever sulfate's available, that cholesterol gets shipped out as cholesterol sulfate as quickly as possible. Whereas if that cholesterol is not there in reserve, you won't be able to take advantage of that sulfate that's now available. So I think it's critically, the cholesterol in the artery walls supplying the heart is there to keep away heart failure, which is what you will have if you don't have enough cholesterol sulfate supply to the heart. And can you explain the role of Chlamydia pneumonia, this bacteria that is often found on the, um, of the plague? Yes, it's actually found in the cardiovascular plaque. It's found in the Alzheimer's plaque. Very, very interesting because Chlamydia pneumoniae, uniquely, and I believe they're the only species that has a unique set of enzymes that produces a form of uh, a molecule that is very, very similar to heparin sulfate. Heparin sulfate is a super, super important molecule in the body that is um, our body has trouble making it because of the poisons that we're exposed to. And so these chlamydia pneumonia can actually help us out by infecting, in, incorporating into the artery wall at the site where the cholesterol is being stored and make the sulfate, make the heparin sulfate, which is critically needed to keep the blood healthy that's supplying the heart, to keep the vessels healthy. Heparin sulfate, by the way, heparin sulfate deficiency in the um, ventricles in the brain is directly linked to autism, not only in humans, but also in multiple mouse studies. In fact, a very interesting paper that I read talked about a very specific defect that they introduced into these mice at birth, where they interfered with their ability to make heparin sulfate in the brain. And these mice demonstrated all of the features of, of autism, mouse autism. Hmm. And they have another uh, mouse model that is that they got by multiple generations of breeding, inbreeding, in lab mice being fed probably high doses of glyphosate in their feed. So I suspect the glyphosate created the autism in these mice. These mice had a severe uh, deficiency in heparin sulfate in the ventricles, along with a missing corpus callosum, which is this a bridge across the top of the ventricles that hooks the left and right hemispheres together. So they had, so this is two different mouse models that showed this heparin sulfate deficiency in the brain connected to autism that we also see in humans.
0: And, and what this kind of suggests um, is that there's some sort of communication on whatever level it is, that the bacteria that we might allow allow into our bodies, and which um, supposedly cause infection and are pathological, may not actually always be pathological, and may actually there may be some cooperation. Yeah, it's like it reminds me of the um, the various traditional um, traditional philosoph- philosophies like uh, Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or natural. Mm-hmm naturopathy talking about the the body having this innate sort of sense of intelligence Mm -hmm. and um knowing what it needs in in in, in, at what time um Mm -hmm. and with the with the different things that you're showing you know especially with the chlamydia pneumoniae stuff Mm -hmm. i mean that was just fascinating because it seems like that is completely in line with what they've been saying for thousands of years
1: Yes, that's very interesting. And I also looked into the flu virus, which was also quite fascinating because the flu virus goes into the muscle cells, infects them and then reprograms them to produce, um, basically put little coats of extracellular matrix around each flu virus particle that's being made. So it, it re um, repurposes the muscle cells. So instead of put, putting that heparin sulfite outside the door where it would normally do it, it redirects its energies towards coating each of those little virus particles with heparin sulfate and then it sh- it, the cell bursts, and it sends those, all those flu particles all on their way. They get taken up by the macrophages, and the macrophages say, thank you very much for the heparin sulfate that you just gave me. In other words, the flu virus is a mechanism to supply the immune cells with heparin sulfate by stealing it from the muscles. And the immune cells desperately need the heparin sulfate in order to be able to support the immune function. That you know, is mind blowing. Your immune deficiency is what causes you to get the flu, and then the flu actually helps to improve your immunity if you survive it. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. God. And then have you come across another virus with similar properties? I suspect many of them have that property. I'm trying to figure out uh, Lyme. Lyme really fascinates me because that's a manganese dependent um, uh, microbe. And I, I know manganese is severely disrupted by glyphosate. I've written a paper about that. And manganese is a really interesting metal because it has uh, uh, it has properties that will respond to uh, electromagnetic fields. Um, it'll be able to. Um, it's it's magnetic. It's paramagnetic, it's called. And I suspect that manganese plays an important role in in um, the electromagnetic uh, communications in the body. But manganese is one of the, is the only mineral I know of that can actually travel along nerve fibers. And what happens with glyphosate, I believe, is that the manganese ends up accumulating in the liver because normally it would be sent out through the bile acids, but the bile acids are broken because of the sipe enzyme problem. So the manganese becomes, builds up at toxic levels in the liver and in the gallbladder. And then it gets shipped out along the vagus nerve over to the brainstem and becomes hyper concentrated in the brainstem nuclei. Causing things like Parkinson's disease, and I suspect ADHD. Meanwhile, the manganese is not getting delivered to the rest of the body, so you have a severe manganese deficiency in the blood. Which you see, you see manganese deficiency in the hair, in the teeth, in the urine, in autism. And I, th- I think manganese deficiency is a feature of autism, but I think it's co- it's coincident with manganese excess in the brainstem, which is a feature of ADHD. So the manganese is not getting properly distributed throughout the body because of the effects of glyphosate
0: and you think that that relates to lime in some way
1: and then lime lime, i suspect is able to redistribute the manganese to where it needs to go just like the flu virus is redistributing the sulfate that's what i'm suspecting
0: i I recall you saying something about was it mycoplasma
1: yes mycoplasma is fascinating oh yes they uh they hang out just inside the cell membrane. And I suspect that they infect cells that have a defective mitochondria, which is easily the case with glyphosate uh, because there's uh, cytochrome C oxidase is crucially dependent upon glycine. So if glyphosate, glyphosate can mess it up um, and cause oxidative damage to the cell and kill the mitochondria. So the cell becomes energy deficient, but these mycoplasmas can hang out just inside the membrane and they can actually convert arginine to ATP. So they can take up uh, this another amino acid, they can use arginine to make ATP, a unique um, facility that they have that our own cells don't, can't do that. So they are supplying ATP to those, dead, to those cells who are severely uh, energy deficient because their own mitochondria are, decept- are defective.
0: And then do you think the glyphosate stops the body from being able to reso- recycle those defective mitochondria?
1: Oh yes, of course, because that's all depending upon functioning lysosomes, and the lysosomes are destroyed by the glyphosate.
0: Right. There's a
1: chloride (laughs) channel problem as well, by the way. The chloride channel, really fascinating. Chloride channel has an essential glycine residue at its squeeze point. It's sort of like an hourglass, and it has a glycine residue at the squeeze point. And if you change that glycine into a negatively charged amino acid, which is what glyphosate is, you completely block the ability of chloride to get past the channel. That's how you can get uh, problems with the the stomach not producing enough uh, hydrochloric acid. So you have Mm -hmm. insufficient acidity in the stomach, which will lead to SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which we have an epidemic in that today as well. Mm -hmm. And also the chloride channel is crucial for the lysosome. The lysosome needs both hydrochloric acid and sulfuric acid to produce the acidic environment that it needs to digest the foods. Both of those are screwed up by the glyphosate.
0: Yeah, low, low stomach acid just seems to be such a common thing these days. Um yes, yes. It's, As you said, it's an epidemic, and no one seems to be able to explain it other than stress. I mean, people will supplement with tons of hydrochloric, like, betaine hydrochloric acid, but it wow. never gets better. Um, and so it's like... Yeah, there has to be an answer as to why the body is not producing enough pancreatic enzymes, why the body is not producing yes. enough bile and, you know, stomach acid. And but this seems all, to – all... yeah. sorry, go ahead.
1: No, go ahead. You just kind of <laughs> all excited. I don't want to interrupt you because I was lose my thought because this is great. The parietal cells in the stomach and the – um, a- 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 oh, gosh. Acinar, I've forgotten the name now. Acinar Acinar. Acinar cells. Acinar cells in the pancreas. They are both um, types of cells that produce a lot of proteins that they excrete. And Of course, the acinar cells produce um, all the um, pancreatic juices. You know, the the enzymes, the uh, trypsin and the pepsin and the lipase are all produced by those. So they have to produce a lot of protein and ship it out, which means they have to take up a lot of amino acids. The same thing for the uh, intrinsic factor that's produced by these, same cells that make the hydrochloric acid, the parietal cells in the stomach. So both of those two cell types, because they need to make a lot of protein, that means they need to take up a lot of amino acids. Glyphosate is taken up along amino acid channels because it's an amino acid that's been shown in studies. So what happens is those cells uh, get much higher doses of glyphosate than other types of cells for that reason, because they need a lot of amino acids. So they get especially clobbered and then they end up putting that glyphosate into those proteins that they make so that the intrinsic factor becomes defective, the trypsin becomes defective. Trypsin has like four separate regions that are glycine rich and each of them has a different role that it plays, but the molecule is going to be really disturbed if it's got glyphosate thrown in at various places in place of glycine. Trypsin won't work, digestive enzymes won't work, proteins won't get digested. Uh, that sets up a leaky gut barrier. Those undigested proteins get out into circulation. The immune cells respond with autoimmune disease. Basically, you get antibodies to these foreign proteins, which then become autoantibodies to your own proteins through a process called molecular mimicry. Mm.
0: Uh, Stephanie we have a question from um, someone in the chat so what they've asked is should people with a hydrogen sulfide small intestinal bacterial overgrowth so an overgrowth of say disulfovibrio um, should they try to kill that bacteria off like they typically would with antibiotics or should they try to address the, uh, the issue of sulfate deficiency or glyphosate toxicity first
1: I know and that's a hard question to answer I don't like antibiotics i would much prefer probiotics as a solution i would prefer mm. natural probiotics such as eating sauerkraut. Yeah. Uh, my husband actually makes his own sort of pickled vegetables which mm. is really fun you start with wine and then you just let it sit and you know in a tight jar for a while it's really great you can make your own pickled vegetables but the acetobacter is a um, is a common microbe in vinegar and we like to use apple cider vinegar bragg's organic apple mm. cider vinegar um, acetobacter is among the very few microbes that can actually metabolize glyphosate. So one thing you can do is eat probiotics, eat natural probiotic foods in order to get microbes uh, in your gut that can actually clear the glyphosate. Very, very important. So I recommend that. Um, I think um, antibiotics are really tricky. You know, one of the things, and I almost am afraid to recommend this because there's so much controversy, but um, there's a woman named Carrie Rivera, who lives in Germany and she claims she has reversed autism in over something like 360 wow. kids have had their autism reversed. And one of the she uses organic diet and uh, probiotics and uh, humic acid and fulvic acid, which are organic matter yeah. in the soil. And then that, and she uses um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And also um, she really likes uh, chlorine dioxide, which is the controversial thing that she uses. And she has told me that without the chlorine dioxide, she has not been successful in reversing the autism. So I find this really, really interesting. And so this is, um, you know, I want to understand what is it that the chlorine dioxide is doing? Well, that's going to actually provide chloride to the um, immune cells in the gut, which will allow them to then produce hypochloride, which is a very powerful Antimicrobial agent that the body naturally produces to fight the microbes. So the chlorine dioxide is sort of like, you know, people say it's like eating bleach, and therefore they say it's really bad. Although they let kids swim in water that's been treated with chloride, so it's not like you know with Clorox. It's basically like Clorox. And people have been America, the American medical establishment has been really down on carry for this, um, for this chlorine dioxide. She gives it to them in very small amounts. And she has not had any uh, any bad reactions among all. She's treated thousands of kids around the world. She treats very few children in America because America has basically uh, put her on a on a blacklist, essentially. Hmm. So Americans are very shy about taking this chlorine dioxide. But people in in India, in South America, in Europe have all had success with reversing autism through chlorine dioxide. And I think it's because it's providing the chloride, the chloride channel is wrecked by glyphosate. Um, The chloride is actually disturbed in the brain, which causes GABA to go in the wrong direction. It's a very interesting process that happens at birth that turns GABA into an inhibitory um, neurotransmitter instead of an excitatory one. And that all depends upon chloride channels that can get destroyed by glyphosate. So I think GABA ends up in the wrong direction in the brain And that's part of the issue in autism that can be fixed. Um, You also have a lot of diarrhea, which causes you to lose sodium chloride. So you end up with a chloride deficiency problem. It's kind of interesting because chloride is a bit like sulfate. Both of them are so common that people don't realize they could be deficient. But I think both of them are deficient in the context of glyphosate. And then we have the problem of like hidden sources of glyphosate. Like I can eat organic, but if I take supplements with enzymes that contain glyphosate then it's mm-hmm. not really quite yeah. absolutely and in fact anthony Sampson ordered porcine trypsin and pepsin and lipase he ordered them from a lab he had them tested and all three of them tested high levels of glyphosate in them.
0: no people way people forget
1: no. people forget to worry about glyphosate in their supplements <sighs> yeah yes very that's scary. insane which makes me believe that that's what's happening with the pancreas the pancreatic acid in our cells, they're taking up the glyphosate and putting it into those um, molecules that they're producing. That would
0: would make perfect sense. Yes. Um, So I'm conscious that we're coming up on our time, Stephanie. Um, Before we finish, I'd really like you to try and touch upon um, what are some of the things that we can do? I mean, first of all, where, I mean, is it is it a good idea for everyone to increase their sulfur intake or are there some things that they should keep in mind while they're increasing sulfur intake or
1: yes i mean obviously if you you need to get your gut microbes healthy that's really number one and certainly organic Um, my husband and i only buy certified organic when we shop we always buy the highest quality food we can find we feel it's worth the extra money because it's um you're going to get your money back in all the healthcare costs that you don't incur by virtue of staying healthy and not getting Alzheimer's disease, you know, which is a very, uh, very clear threat these days. Um, I really believe in sunlight. I, so I, I work hard at getting outside in the sun without sunscreen, without sunglasses. I even don't wear my glasses uh, when I'm outside uh, in order to be able to optimize the uh, the sun receiving into the eyes to help the pineal gland to produce the sulfate. Which I think is crucial to to protect from Alzheimer's disease and autism. I see sunglasses on two-year-olds, and I just want to rip them off. You know, I have a very hard (laughs) time not saying something to the mother because we've been trained, you know, to protect from the sun. And the sunscreen is toxic. It has aluminum in it. Uh, The aluminum can work synergistically with the glyphosate to destroy the enos. So aluminum will actually actively mess up your skin's ability to make sulfate. and melanin is derived from the shikimate pathway, so you have a problem, too, with tanning. If you're getting a lot of exposure to glyphosate, you won't be able to tan because you don't have enough melanin in your skin. So uh, organic diet, uh, getting out in the sun. If you live near the beach, make it a habit to take a walk on the beach as frequently as you can, barefoot in the water along the shore, very, very healthy. You're getting grounding, very good grounding in the salt water, and you're getting, of course, the sunlight, and um, the healthy sulfur air over the ocean very very healthy activity and of course the exercise which is always good exercise is good Um, eating is basically high sulfur foods Uh, if you have a sulfur sensitivity then you have to fix the gut first and again I Mm -hmm. don't like antibiotics but it might be uh, you'd have to do it under doctor supervision it might be there'd be a way to do antibiotics probiotics you know kind of reshape, or of course there's fecal uh, implant which is interesting fecal transplant fecal Mm -hmm. transplant i don't mean implant (laughs) (laughs) that's an interesting (laughs) one (laughs) which is people have had tremendous success with that um sounds a little odd but uh that's a way to jump start your microbiome if you've got a healthy source um and then um i guess these kinds of these uh Chelating and detox enemas and things like that may be helpful to help to get rid of some of the toxicity. The toxic metals, of course, are an issue. The metals are all messed up by by glyphosate, and all of the toxic metals are made more toxic. And even the non toxic metals are made toxic. So iron becomes a problem, manganese becomes a problem with glyphosate. You need to absolutely need to get rid of the glyphosate. And it's very difficult to get the glyphosate out of the proteins that are already, you know damaged by the glyphosate sitting in your brain, unable to be cleared. That is just really, really difficult. And you have to work on getting enough sulfate into your brain in order to activate the lysosomes that can help to clear that debris that's building up in your brain and is eventually going to give you Alzheimer's disease.
0: Yeah, it's got to be that two-pronged approach, hasn't it? Not only avoiding the glyphosate but really trying to increase that sulfate as well and also the sulfate utilization. So I know that one of your colleagues is has found that um, some of his clients have, have benefited from from taking molybdenum supplementation. Is that correct? Mm-hmm.
1: That's right, yes. Um, all, all of the minerals. I mean, I actually, of course, I really recommend using um, – you know Mediterranean sea salt instead of using regular table salt i th- I hope people know that, but uh, table salt is just sodium chloride and whereas these um salts that are dried from the sea have a whole bunch of all of the uh, minerals in the appropriate balance typically that you would want to have it's It's dangerous I think to take mineral supplements like just plain zinc or something like that because you can easily get one out of get them out of balance if you get one too much it'll compete with another one that'll end up being deficient because of of an excess in one. There are also a lot of sulfur-containing supplements that you might wanna try. Um, and my husband actually takes one that's a methyl methane, mm. chondroitin sulfate, and glucosamine sulfate, all packaged mm-hmm. into one. He takes that on a regular basis. And we also, both of us, take turmeric, uh, organic turmeric, um, which is, uh, turmeric is an amazing molecule. There are so many papers written about its benefits. I think its main benefit is that it's transporting sulfate from the gut to the liver. And there's a, a lot of those um, polyphenols and flavonoids that are found in fresh fruits and vegetables. I believe that one of their main purposes is to get the sulfate delivered to the liver to maintain a healthy li- liver, which is, of course, mm. very crucial.
0: That's her. very interesting because the mainstream media has been bashing turmeric lately. Like really, <laughs> so really going I mean, off the I've, charts.
1: That's really sad. I've seen so many papers showing the benefits of turmeric. I've seen papers also that talk about... They've done studies like resveratrol was another one, resveratrol, mm-hmm. which is found in, in grapes and wine. Um, it also transports sulfate. So all of these that um, I'm seeing um, that are uh, these interesting molecules that are complicated molecules made by plants, almost all of them transport sulfate. It's very, very huh. interesting. Maybe and that's, I think why that's one of their main purposes. Hmm? Yeah, Maybe that's why sulforaphane, it's so popular, like broccoli <laughs> yes. sprouts. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. That, that's a terrific. I, I really recommend cruciferous vegetables and we eat a lot of them. We just had Brussels sprouts last night. We have cabbage. We're eating those all the time. Mm. Really, really healthy foods. And of course, garlic. We eat huge amounts of garlic. We also eat ginger, fresh ginger, fresh garlic. Um, and, uh, so herbs and spices also, uh, like, um, oh, I'm blanking. <laughs> What's coriander? It, oh, I love, yes, coriander. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I, love I love coriander, it. but I lost the word there for a moment. I love Jakes it. tastes so good. Yes. Yes,
0: That's it's my great. favorite
1: herb. Yes, and all organic, you know, it has to be organic. So, um,
0: you know, Which you can uh, find it?
1: other supplements that contain sulfur. And of course, glutathione, you know, glutathione is a, is a, has glycine as one of it. It's a tri, it's a, it's three amino acids. And one of them is glycine, and so I've often wondered whether the issues with glutathione have to do with glyphosate substituting for glycine in mm. glutathione. Yeah, that's what, what I was going to ask. Like, will supplemented uh, glycine help? You know, right? And I, I, people ask me that, and and it makes sense that it would because if you have more glycine, then it's more likely to sub, you know, less likely to get the glyphosate to substitute. Yeah. However, glycine itself can become toxic in excessive amounts because it will substitute for alanine by mistake during protein synthesis, if there's too much of it, which is really oh, exactly right. really Okay. Different.
0: How much is too much?
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't generally, I generally like to try to eat foods rather than supplements. First of all, because I'm never quite sure of the processing that went into the supplement and whether it's going to be glyphosate free or not, whereas if right. I can buy organic food, you can get organic sup- supplements, which is what I do with a turmeric. And of course, the gel cap itself could be problematic because especially a gel cap that's derived from gelatin, that's derived from cows and pigs that are fed heavy doses of glyphosate, uh,
0: yeah. you're going to
1: have contamination in your gel cap. Mm. So that's worrisome. So I tend to like to eat whole foods. Uh, most of what we uh, we eat is fruits and vegetables and then healthy meats and uh, fish. Uh, we like chicken liver. Organic chicken liver, I think, is one of the healthiest things you can eat, loaded with wow. vitamins and minerals and cholesterol. I think... My husband, who has heart disease, eats a high cholesterol diet, which is kind of blows the mind of his doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, is there anything, anything else that you would like to share with us, Stephanie? You know, is there anything you're working on now or anything you'd like to promote or anything?
1: Yeah, well, I'm just absolutely fascinated by this idea of glyphosate substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. I just published, well, I have two papers that are now on the web, but not yet uh, available from the journal, but they, they've got the links there. So they're coming out soon um, from, from an open access journal. Uh, two papers that are companion papers on uh, glyphosate as the critical uh, factor in a uh, kidney failure in among the uh, mm sugarcane workers in Central America. It's really been a catastrophe there for the young men, fathers of young children are dying and record numbers of kidney failure, a bizarre form of kidney failure that is um, it, among the people who work in the sugarcane fields. And there've been a lot of papers written about it, but it seems very, very clear to me that glyphosate is the key factor in that disease. And um, what was fascinating was when you look at the particular unique symptoms that they have, you can find specific proteins that have essential glycines that if they were disrupted by glyphosate would cause exactly those symptoms. So it's really quite a beautiful story. And that's what I'm finding with every paper that I write. I go deep into one particular topic, such as anencephaly. I mentioned gout earlier. Um, I've done one on ALS, which is quite amazing. Various proteins that have been linked to ALS in, to the familiar familial ALS that's with the genetic mutations, those mutations are often glycine residues within certain proteins that are causing the ALS. So you're seeing familial ALS showing up earlier in life due to the fact that a protein has a misplaced glycine. There's no longer glycine at that place. But now you're seeing then the person who gets ALS without the gene is getting it because glyphosate is substituting for that same glycine residue. That's what I think. And so it's just amazing what I'm finding. I don't have enough time to to dig through all the research, but the research is already done. This is what's really fascinating to me. The research is already done. that shows all of this evidence, which to me overwhelmingly supports the concept that glyphosate is substituting by mistake for glycine during protein synthesis. And I think that is how you can explain why one single chemical could be causing so many diseases as we're seeing in all those correlations. It's very, very strong temporal correlations between glyphosate usage and all these different diseases. It can be explained through this one mechanism, I believe. You also spoke about gluten intolerance. And, yes, gluten intolerance is easily explained by glyphosate because the wheat is sprayed huh. with glyphosate right before the harvest. And it's been shown that glyphosate is present in high levels in wheat-based products. Wow. And it's gonna get into the gluten, make it difficult to break down, but it's also gonna get into the trypsin, which makes it difficult for the enzyme to work and so you get those undigested peptides causing uh, autoimmune disease wow. wow this is very shocking <laughs> but yeah <laughs> no it's protects that's our motto <laughs> <laughs> i see there's a question here about the sugarcane fields and it's not that it's gmo sugarcane it's that the sugarcane is treated with glyphosate uh, shortly before the harvest as a ripener because it increases mm-hmm. the yield of sugar it causes it to produce extra sugar Mm. same with wheat yes well wheat yes that's right it's a ripener also by the way on um, chickpeas and garbanzo beans lentils all of those legumes high high levels of glyphosate in those
0: it really does paint a disturbing picture doesn't it it
1: it really does I I think we have to do something quick or else we're just going to pretty much destroy the earth you know it doesn't look good but speaking about infertility problems, it's also related. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the sperm uh, contain um, a motility protein, a protein that allows them to move, uh, that is critically dependent upon glycine. So if you start throwing glyphosate into, those, into the protein that is a contractile protein for the sperm to be able to move, then you're going to have sperm motility problems, which is certainly connected to infertility. It's called Dynine, I think it's D Y N E I N. Jeez. All
0: right. Well, if does anyone else have any questions? Any others? Um, I think we've covered a lot. Everything I wanted to go. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> it was a lot. A little bit more yeah.
0: than <laughs> I We could keep I, going. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we could yes. probably go for like seven more hours, but uh, <laughs> we are conscious of your time, Stephanie. Yes. Um, okay. Thank I wanted, you. Uh, yeah, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Um, yes, thank you've covered so many topics today yeah. and, um, and it's impossible just to listen to this interview and try and understand even a portion of what you said because it is, there's so much information behind it. And yes. oh, this is why I would recommend all of the listeners, um, we'll post, we'll post the link to stephanie seneff's website in fact um i'll read that out now it is sorry would you be able to read out your website stephanie
1: yes yes http uh people p-e-o-p-p-p-o-e-o-p-l-e e d u slash seneff s-e-n-e-f-f that's my last name um and i also by the way have a novel that i published recently i wrote the novel probably eight years ago when I was first discovering all of this stuff. And um, it's, it's about two mothers um, who are friends and who uh, discover all the problems with the uh, food and the vaccines and things like that. So um, it's called Cindy and Erica's obsession to solve America's healthcare crisis. It, mm. it talks about a lot of this stuff about it. it. It's sort of Cindy is they're on a mission to understand things. And then Cindy writes blog posts and it gets into a lot of science, even though it's a novel.
0: Very Fantastic. Cool. Yeah. And can we get that on? Is that available, it's available on Amazon? On
1: Amazon, yes.
0: Oh, okay. Fantastic.
1: The American's Obsession, if you can remember that much.
0: Mm. Okay. Uh, I'd just like to, to recommend everyone who's listening if they. Want to find out more of her work? Um, go to that website and there are tons. I mean, there are practic, there are basically lots and lots and lots of different resources. There's lectures, there's videos, there's audios, there's papers. I mean, there's, there's everything that you can think of, but it's all about sulfate and it's all about this really interesting information. And it will, I think it's really important. (laughs) Um, and it's quite hard to understand, but when you start to get your head around it, it makes a lot more sense. Um, so yeah.
1: Right there I've I posted a lot of the slides from my talks and people should be feel free to repurpose those in any way they want because I'm very eager to get this message out to That's the world.
0: Right well thank you for coming on Stephanie and um, thank you and just carry on doing what you're doing. you know yeah, It's thank you. a great service for humanity.
1: Yes. Thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> Spread the word. <laughs> <laughs> great. Thank you yep
0: so uh thank you for joining us everyone today it was a health and wellness show and see you next week bye everybody bye Bye. Bye.